Guys, welcome to the podcast. Today is going to be episode number 304, and we're going to be talking with Cliff Gray of Flat Tops Wilderness Guides. And we're going to be diving into a whole bunch of topics. I'm actually going to be recording this, or did record this, on location up at Cliff's um, outfitting business up at his property there in Colorado. And I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of this episode. Before we get to that, I want to thank you guys for your loyal support of this podcast and I want to encourage you guys if you have any comments questions or anything you want to run by me uh, please send me an email at uh, jscottoutdoors at gmail.com you can also follow along on Instagram at jscottoutdoors you can send me a direct message there as well Uh, I just want to thank you guys for your loyal support. I also want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to go on iTunes and uh, leave a a review. Uh, Leave a fair review. Leave positive comments. uh, and I appreciate that. Uh, A couple reminders. uh, The Kuyu Mobile Showroom uh, is going to be in Boise, Idaho, June 29th through July 1st. Idaho Falls, Idaho, July 6th through the 8th. Bozeman, Montana, July 13th through the 15th, Denver, Colorado, July 20th through the 22nd, Colorado Springs, Colorado, July 27th through the 29th. I'm going to try and make it to the Denver um, dates there, uh, July 20th through the 22nd. You can go to kuyu.com and uh, check out the dates for the Kuyu Mobile Showroom and the Kuyu World Tour. You can also... um, the schedule's posted on my Instagram account. Guys, uh, I want to thank you so much for your support, and let's get right to this episode with Cliff Gray. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. I am on location here in Colorado, and I'm right on the edge of the wilderness here with Cliff Gray of Flat Tops Wilderness Guides. And I've gotten a tour of your place today. It's pretty awesome to see where, you know, your business takes place. It's a it's a gorgeous place. What elevation are we at here, Cliff? So we're at right around 8,200 feet. 8,200 feet. And uh, Cliff, how long have you owned this business? So I bought it uh, where I guess we're closing in on five years ago. Five years. And for those that haven't heard you on the podcast, you've been on several times um, why don't you give kind of a brief um, intro or background on the hunts and, that you provide, you know, your main staple hunts and such, and services that you provide here out of this camp? Sure. So so you're kind of sitting at the, the base station for us where we do all of our packing. Um, my, my business is primarily elk hunts. Um, but I do probably 20% of it, of it now is deer hunts. And a lot of those we do actually out of here. Um, but as you can see, it's, it's mainly a wilderness packing operation. You kind of saw our facilities. Um, so all of it's horseback in to uh, wall tent style camps. Um, and primarily, uh, it's in the flat tops wilderness. We hunt a little bit of the adjacent forest service. Um, but that's our main, our, let's say the core the core of our business, particularly out of here. Um, in September, I do a few goat hunts in other areas, um, but uh, primarily we're just a wilderness hunting business. Um, we do a little fishing in the in the summertime. I'm try I've been kind of trying to build that up. Um, we, we've discussed that a little bit, and again, those are mostly full day fishing trips, um, and then we do some overnight stuff. Um, a lot of that it, summer. Oh, go ahead. Is Jeff. that in lakes or is that in rivers or streams or what is that? So most of our day fishing stuff is in streams, just because of the distance. Um, there's a couple of lakes we can get to, but most of our the real high alpine lakes, it needs to be like a couple day trip. Gotcha. Um, and uh, we've got uh, we've kind of got an assortment of of lakes up there. Some are larger, and then some are some are smaller smaller lakes. Um, the flat tops is interesting because it has a, a history of actually aerial stocking of the lakes, um, but also, given most all of them are natural lakes, um, a fair amount of them have died off. Some of them, you know, have the depth that they haven't died off, so they've actually got pretty big fish in them. So it's just figuring out all of that. But go ahead. Mostly brook trout, or or what do they have up there? 
Yeah, so in the in the like where my summer camp is, which I was showing you on the map, it's sixteen, seventeen miles in there. Um, all the streams there are actually all native cutthroat. So you don't you don't run into brook trout in there and then the uh the lakes are for the most part we catch cutthroat in them. Um there's actually one lake that uh you know way back in the day was was stocked with Mackinac, so it's got some pretty big fish in it. But uh for the most part the how the high alpine stuff, at least in my experience, has been mainly cutthroat. And in some of those lakes, I mean, is it common to see big big cutthroat or are most of them you know eight to ten inches or do you get you know 16 18 inch fish yeah i would say that like anything bigger than you know 14 inches is is getting there that's the the bigger the bigger side of things and uh you know i've got some guys that uh, work for me for me you've met a couple of them that are really into the fishing part of it um i personally have never been like a like a really intense into the fly fishing business as i have in the hunting hunting's always been my passion so i'm kind of letting those guys particularly jimmy who you met kind of pursue that and build it up um it's a great area particularly for a guy you know as you know jay there's probably a thousand different places you can fish around here they're all exceptional there's a lot of places to float so it's you know i think what we're going for is to have a little more of like a a different type of fishing Mm -hmm. trip it's going to have a horse component it's going to have kind of the wilderness component if that makes sense i imagine in some of the high lake fishing that i've done they're not real picky so i mean it's it's definitely a place where you can come and probably catch a lot of fish they're really beautiful fish and there's probably nobody around yeah, I mean, particularly up uh, in the in the really far remote stuff. I mean, I've never had a problem catching as many fish as I wanted to, and that's saying something because I'm I'm by no means an exceptional fisher. And you fish with dynamite, so I mean. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's just kind of a. It, I've never had a hard time. Like you say, they're they're pretty aggressive, um, in my experience. But uh, you know, I'd say the only ones that uh, that seem to be finicky are in the one deeper lake we have where there are Mackinac. You have to be kind of prepared for that. So are there still lake trout? I mean, for those listeners that don't know, a Mackinac is a lake trout, and lake trout are known for being uh, predatorial and eating other fish and and such, I believe. Yeah. Are there still some big Mackinac in there? Yeah, you know, I, I you know, we haven't caught any of the the massive ones, but I know that in in ice, you know, when the ice is melting, a lot of guys will pack in and I mean, I've I've seen pictures of probably, you know, 15, 16 pounds fish in there. Wow. Which is kind of it's 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 interesting because it almost has this uh um, I don't want to call it unnatural, but it, it is kind of an odd thing yeah. to be in a high alpine lake. I mean, you're talking. How do they get that big yeah, type of thing? You're talking about a lake that's like way, you know, way in there. Um but they're just they're you know just an aggressive fish the, the survivor right yeah um, I, to me what's more interesting actually is that when I learned about how they used to stock these lakes out of airplanes you know it's kind of neat so they would I assume be down at hatcheries or whatever and then they would fly in and make their drops is that what they would do yeah so I actually I gotta I gotta talk to uh, one of the pilots who used to do it a, a long time ago and then unfortunately. My understanding is the main guy that did it in Colorado actually passed away um, not too long ago. But anyways, um, yeah, it was just they essentially had it down to a science in terms of what speed, what elevation um, they could drop the fish at. Without them dying. Yeah, because I guess it's not that um, it's not necessarily the elevation, like the impact from like a distance thing. It's the problem is if you're going too fast horizontally, the, the fish will skip. You know, they'll skip yeah. when they hit the water. So. Yeah. I'm not an expert at it, but I just kind of found the whole thing uh, fascinating. Now, I think one thing that's interesting about that is they're flying in the wilderness and dropping fish off. Would you not be able to do that today? You know, it's an interesting question. I don't know. Okay. You know, I my my intuition is probably that may, there, may be some, there may be a reason why they're not doing it. You know, and that that could be a component of it. It could be financial things or whatever, too. And they could. It's interesting because I talked to some of the local guys and sometimes they might be doing it. And I just am not, you know, just because I'm an outfitter in there, it doesn't mean I'm always privy to everything that's going on. Right. Um, So they might still be doing some of that stuff. Um, When I was a kid, um, a lot of outfitters used to actually pack them in on panniers for fishing game. Hmm. Um, 
is in in what you you know you'd go through and then when you did a water crossing you would aerate new water in or whatever but um as far as i know that's that that's not common practice did you ever ride with them as a kid doing that you know i never did no now you talk about growing up you grew up not too far from here um, but I thought I would tell the listeners, so this morning I was, I spend the summers in Carbondale, Colorado, between Carbondale and Basalt, and um, I came uh, north into Glenwood Springs, and then I hit I-70, and then from I-70 I turned and went east, and I drove following the Colorado River up Glenwood Canyon, and then when you kind of get out of Glenwood Canyon going east, you get to a place called Dotsero, which while I was waiting, Cliff met me there, but I made a little tour and there's quite a few houses starting to pop up there. Um, that little subdivision there, I can remember years ago, seemed like they just started and now there's quite a few rooftops there. Yeah. You know, dots are that little development for in particularly when the real estate market came back here in the last couple of years, they've been building there. Um, but that goes for everywhere in the Vail Valley or the roaring fork where you're at. I mean, it's kind of interesting, Jay. Because when you come here, it seems like there's a lot of developable land, but um, a lot of hunters realize this, but other people don't, that most of it's public land, and it's really probably very far from ever being developed. So a lot of these little communities, they're almost like islands, right? Um, So there's really not that much more that can be developed. You know, Eagle's pretty tapped out. Um, and then Dotsero's kind of the last, uh, fringe of development probably yeah. in the, in the Vail Valley. Um, you know, and that's a, that, you know, coming back to the wildlife thing, that's affected things here. But, uh, I guess one thing nice is that there's only so much development that can happen. Right. It's going to ultimately be tapped out here after right. a while. Um, so I, I, I turned at Dotsero. If I would have kept going east, I would have gotten to Gypsum, uh, which, I believe it's American Gypsum is the is the company. I could be wrong. Oh yeah, they've got a um, they got a plant down. Yeah, there. they got a plant there, uh, and then on up the road you've got Eagle, then you've got you know Edwards and Avon, and then you've got you know Minturn Vale. You know, yeah. Vale's only two hours from Denver. Just to try and give the listeners kind of a geographic, you know, where we're at, and so north of I seventy, um, north of Dotsero, and. You know, north of you here would be Steamboat Springs, and it would be north and quite a bit to the east. Um, and then what would be like straight north and west? Would that be like uh, Meeker? Yeah, so if you go across, like I was showing you the, the map of the flat tops, if you go directly north across from me, and then you, you, I guess it'd be slightly northwest. You'll hit Meeker in all that country, and there's, there's, that's, that's still very much a, an outfitting agriculture community, um, and so it's actually interesting because it's not that far from here as a crow flies, but it's actually quite a bit of distance driving, driving ways. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that. I mean, the flat tops. That's a big. That's a big area. Uh, your concession. Do they call it concessions here or we, areas? We, yeah, we call them permits. Cause permits? Like roughly how many acres are in your permit? You know, so uh, our areas aren't necessarily exclusive. Like we've got some gray area in terms of our borders. So I guess the better way to answer the question is like how much do I hunt? I probably hunt, um, you know, roughly 115,000 acres. Is, like that's been my best guess when I look at it. Um, but there's a fair amount of geography in there and it Probably it varies year to year. If we've got a lot of weather, we probably hunt a, just a subset of that. Yeah. Whereas if we don't have much weather, we might we might be hunting more than that. And the topography, um, you know, I thought it was interesting as we're coming up the Colorado River. So so we're coming up the Colorado, and then it bends, and then the Eagle River Valley goes on up towards Gypsum uh, and follows I seventy. Uh, but then the Colorado turns and goes up towards Sweetwater and burns. Yep. Uh, and then you turn west out of the Colorado River Valley to come up here, and you're just kind of climbing the whole way. Yeah. I mean, we're here at 8,200 feet. Most of your hunts take place from, say, right here at 8,200 feet up to what's the highest peak in some of your camps or areas that you, you know, knobs that you go up to to hunt. Yeah, so we don't, uh, unlike some of the areas that we do goat and sheep stuff in, we don't have like the real high 14er type of ranges. So our high points here are just a hair above 12,000. 
But what's interesting is it's not when you're up at the top here, like a lot of the country is at timberline because the it's almost like a plateau at timberline. So you have rolling meadows um, with that kind of that short stubby uh, timber that's really rolling between being below timberline and above. It's not like you don't get the real intense mountain peaks. Right. So our mountain peaks are really just kind of, they might be a big rim rocky outcropping, kind of like that, that picture there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that'll be your peak, and you get up on the top there, and you'll be 12,000, maybe 50 feet above that or something. So tell me about um, our winter that we just came out of. Uh, tell me about uh, you know snowpack levels. Uh, conditions of 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 the you know your your country that you hunt and uh, you know anything that might be average or or abnormal uh, for this year or is everything pretty much the same as always? It, it seems to me that like it's it's caught up to average. We for sure had at least in the segment of the mountains here above uh, our place, we had a higher than normal snowpack. We've been starting to cut trail and that sort of thing, so we kind of have an idea of, you know, what the uh, what the snow's looking like. And given the last week of pretty pretty darn warm weather, it seems to have caught up. As you can see, our creeks are starting to run a little clearer, so we've peaked runoff and and all that. So I would guess it's going to be probably pretty typical. You know, the probably sometime around the first couple of days of July, we can get into our furthest camps. Um, it does seem to me that. Um, the elk calved a little bit lower than they did before, but that was because snow hadn't still down here and there's just no green up up higher. Um, but other than that, it seems to be like a pretty a pretty normal year. Um, as you saw, like the, the one thing unique about our area, and I guess this applies to 35, 26, 24, like a lot of the units along the, the uh, Colorado River, is if you're used to driving like the Vale Valley or the Roaring Fork even, you don't see all that winter range. I mean, we have a massive amount of undeveloped winter range, which is nice. Mm-hmm. So like when there's a lot of the a lot of the hoopla about the Gunnison Basin, snow levels and that sort of thing, killing deer, um, we didn't have that just because we have, we had less snow here, but also we've got all that good winter range. It's got good southern exposure. So I think they're doing pretty good. I've talked to the fishing game guys. They seem to be... Animals seem to have done done well. Um, they're not not concerned about the deer. Um, there's some concern on the elk. They've cut 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 a bunch of the female harvest, which I think is a good thing. Um, but I don't think that has to do with anything to do with conditions. It's more just game management over the last decade. So cow numbers across the board have been cut on all hunts. Yeah. So uh, particularly on the the late season cow hunts, which were were really high success, they they cut them. Um, and then I think, you know, they've done that in several units around, around the state, particularly these big, these big units, um, that are, you know, big over the counter, counter stuff. Um, and I think that's a function of one lower cow numbers, but we also have historically low calf ratios and they're, and they're working on that, trying to figure it out. So, you know. High lion counts and low calf numbers. Yeah, yeah. imagine I mean, that. Yeah, I mean, you, from the other <laughs> podcasts, you know that I'm I'm gonna go there always. But yeah, I mean, everybody knows what's going on. There's too many. There, you're there's you know there's more bears than there has been historically, and our predator numbers are for sure up. You know, and 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 we face political things here where it's hard to hard for these guys to manage that. For sure, and it's you know one of those things that once it starts sliding, it's hard to get on the other side of it, and so it's you know it, it's definitely something to to think about. You get on the wrong side of that predation curve, it's it could be ugly for a while. Yeah, or yeah, like you're saying, it could take a really long time. Yeah, and you know, as hunters, we got to kind of we got to realize that you're. Uh, it's it's really interesting, Jay, because I actually even remember as like a kid. Uh, when you learn about like basic like biology of animals, you always hear about the cycle, right? And I think that's a reality, right? You have this cycle of of game and and predators, but um, as hunters, do we really want that cycle to be like really volatile? Do you really want uh, fifteen years of no elk hunting or or you know devastated elk numbers or whatever? I don't think you do. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of us of, of science in that and everything else but uh 
But I think Colorado, for a very long time, uh, has been able to mitigate a lot of that volatility. We've always had really strong elk herds, um, and that's made like a really strong hunting community here for residents and non-residents. So hopefully we can kind of keep that tact, you know. For sure. Now, you grew up uh, not too far from here uh, on a ranch uh, south of Gypsum, right? Or kind of outside yeah, of Gypsum? So- I spent part of my childhood on a ranch. Uh, it's more directly south of Eagle. South of Eagle, yep. okay. And then uh, you guys moved to California. Uh, yep. But you come from a ranching family and, and uh, been around horses and stock and such uh, your whole life. How, how easy of a transition was it for you to go from having that kind of be just second nature, you know, just the way it is to you know, running an outfitting business where you have, I mean, I would assume you have, what, 50, 60 head of stock? Yeah, so when I'm running full swing in rifle season, usually, like last year, I think I had about 55, 56 horses, or horses and mules. Um, I think it's, I think any outfitter that runs, like, something remote, you either got airplanes, you either got horses, or you either got boats, and uh, they're all a pain in the, pain in the rear, um, but the horse thing is, uh, there's like a, there's a big learning curve to it to anyone. If you didn't grow up with it, it's, it's a challenge. And even if you did, they're a pain, you know, and they take a lot of, a lot of resources and then you got to get your staff kind of tuned up to, to using horses. And that's a challenge. Um, I don't know. I've been, I was talking to, a, I don't think we've talked about this before, but I was talking to a couple of my buddies in British Columbia and it seems to me that, um, you know, even there, maybe with the additional resident pressure they're facing, there might be a little comeback in some of the horse stuff. You know, because a lot of a lot of the guys up there, just because of cost and whatever else, they they haven't used horses. You know, in the last decade, so but they need to go back and hunt some of those more remote spots. So, I mean, the horse packing thing—I don't know. It's 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 always love hate, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, you, I mean, I don't. There's. I have a lot of nostalgia for it because it is, it's cool, you know, to be up in the mountains packing horses and you realize that you're kind of like on a little time machine there. Um, but there's for sure those moments like freezing mornings where you're chasing horses or whatever, where you realize why, why we created <laughs> cars. You know? so. I, I look at some of these photos. Um, we're sitting down here in uh, kind of one of the bunk houses and, uh, later season hunts, uh, deer hunts. Sometimes the deer hunters, a few of the deer hunters will stay here. Uh, but really cool, um, looking at some old big pictures and they're probably, you know, I'm going to say two and a half feet tall by maybe, you know, three and a half feet long, you know, big, nice mural type, type photos. And there's some over here with a big bachelor herd of bulls. And then there's a big string, um, of, of, obviously probably the outfitter before you um right that photo yeah so that was a uh, big string of horses and mules packing out yeah so that's packing out of the south fork um and that was when uh that area and then my area were both owned um by a uh, a company called colorado high guides and at the time um their claim to fame was uh, the biggest outfitters in the west um, and I'm sure they were probably by a lot. Um, and I know, and I know one of the previous owners, um, the, there were two partners, one of them passed away, but uh, really good guys. And, uh, it's funny, like you look at running, I mean, I, I have a pretty big packing operation, but to fathom what they were doing, you know, hundred plus horses and then also having base camps, you know, very, very far away. Um, it's, it's pretty wild to watch, right? You look at those pictures and you kind of think, yeah, that was uh, that was when there was real men, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm kind of looking at it. It's snow covered. Looks like there's what probably six, eight inches of snow on the ground. It doesn't look exactly too warm. And I'm thinking, man, I'm not that tough. Yeah, and and actually the uh, the guy one the guy who um, I'm sure he's in that picture. He actually wrote a kind of a biography about his time here. And like they have, particularly coming out of the South Fork. I mean, they have stories that coming out chest deep and horses and stuff like that. Some pretty, some pretty intense stuff. So I, I think that picture probably doesn't even uh, depict the intensity of it. Oh, I'm know. sure. But. I'm sure. Um, one thing uh, I want to ask you about: um, you guys uh, had a great uh, spring uh, bear hunting. 
uh, in BC. You do you do bear hunts in BC, and and I know you guys had some good success up there. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so we had uh, we had fun. I'd say that uh, um, I unfortunately I didn't get to stay too long because I was I had uh, I was about to have another baby, which which did show up. Um, but uh, we had a good time, and uh, it's interesting because conditions weren't. Uh, ideal by any means because we had they had a really late spring at least in the the area that that I book and uh, do the hunts in up there um, in those coastal mountains but it was kind of a unique deal because instead of hunting the bears primarily in logging cuts uh, we got to hunt them on snow slides which is always kind of interesting because it it makes it even feel more of like an intense mountain hunt so that was fun um, and then the nice thing was that first week, although we had to work for every bear that the guys got, um, they were all big bears. So, nice. um, which, which tends to be the case. Um, it tends to be, it not, doesn't hold a hundred percent true, but like for those, right when the melt off starts there and the bears start to come out, like you'll never see any sows with cubs or very rarely, almost every bear you see will be, will be big, which is nice. Cause what we were talking about it at lunch even uh, as somebody that's seen a lot of bears and then also talked to guys that have judged a thousand times as many bears as I have, they're really hard to judge. That time of year, it's nice. You know what a little bitty boo-boo is going to look like, but if they don't look like that, they're probably a pretty decent decent bear. So um, so that was it, was, it was a fun hunt because of that. Good, and are you booking hunts for next year as well? Yeah, I am. Um, so people can contact me on that and, Perfect. you know, and while I was there, I was able to collect some more, uh, some, you know, some good content and stuff that we put on the website. So you, people are welcome to check that out. Good. Speaking of uh baby, um, got to see Amy today and the new baby Wyatt. Yep. Beautiful baby boy and big boy. Yeah. He was eight pounds, 13 ounces. And, uh, uh, your wife. I kept texting you going, what's going on? You're like, nothing yet. And she, what was it in like four or five days past when she was yeah, due? Yeah, I think, I think she was, uh, it would have been six days after. Um, yeah, I'm just glad it wasn't a, uh, a Colorado River uh, baby because yeah. she was barely made it to the hospital. Sounds but. like her water broke at 10 p.m. and it was a rush to the Vail Hospital. Yeah, we barely made it, but that's okay. All that counts <laughs> is you made it. Yeah, um, exactly. So it was good, but we're happy you showed up and... We're we're starting to get a little bit over sleep deprivation and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, but yeah. Um, I I want to talk about um, we've talked about it before. You uh, went to Stanford. Yep. And w- one of the things I'm always curious about is how did you choose Stanford as a co- as a university to go to, and why did you pick Stanford? Uh, you know, it's an interesting question, Jay. I mean, there's a little bit of bias in there because one of my brothers also went. Um, so I had that bias, uh, at the time I was living in California. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I think, uh, I mean, it, for sure it was cause my brother was there. It's a beautiful campus. Um, so you had a sense of, yeah, he was there ahead of you. You had been there. You were kind of familiar with it. Yeah, Obviously it's an unbelievable school. Yep. But I'm always curious how someone, you know, I, I chose my path, but I'm curious how someone, you know, Stanford's obviously a very academic college. Sure. Um, you know, how you ended up there or were there other choices that that you thought of or was it Stanford from the beginning? Yeah, I for sure had a strong bias because my brother Ty was there. But, um, yeah, I looked at a bunch of different schools, uh, East Coast, you know, the East Coast schools that are all kind of the, in the same realm of things. Um, and there was a couple there. I just decided I just didn't want to be on the East Coast. My family was on in the West. And then also, I mean, it for sure played a, f- a fair amount into it is I was still somewhat close to home and I could hunt. So I could go home and hunt on the weekends or whatever. So that was nice. Um you know, it's actually... Uh, You're Cal- probably the only person at Stanford that hunted. Yeah, there's a couple other guys, <laughs> but yeah, for the most part, you know. Um, but, uh, but you know, there was, a, there was a few guys, but I still could go home and hunt, um, and I had places to hunt. And, you know, California, back when I lived there, was... Re- I mean, the hunting... It's a pretty good hunting state. Um, it, it doesn't have that, rep, you know, the reputation. You get away from those cities, and there's some amazing country in California. Right, because... And, and some, yeah. a lot of game. Oh, yeah, because, gen- I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, um, 
it well it, it, it there's kind of like this scale that uh that is interesting about like the density of wildlife right and it seems you know the more fertile the land is the more prone it is to have already been developed by agriculture whatever had more game right it's actually it's it's really interesting like when i was at sci i was talking to jared dueling um that own that runs one of the yukon areas and uh he actually uh happened to be right here in the sweetwater valley a couple years ago hunting deer and his comment to me was like you're you have so much game you know what i mean and it's interesting because you think like he's running one of the big one of the best yeah. areas in the Yukon and his perception is the game is so dense here right but when you compare here to somewhere in California that you know for the most part that is private because just it doesn't have the big swaths of public land but you realize there it's like oh it's even denser game you know now they have like reflecting on the predator problems and stuff like that and just general horribly mismanaged wildlife they have problems but um but there is good opportunity yeah. there you know what what would you hunt mostly blacktail or yeah i hunted blacktail quite a bit um and then i waterfowl hunted quite a bit my my dad liked to duck hunt um but yeah i hunted a bunch a lot of blacktail and i hunted a lot of turkeys um that's probably i mean that's probably the one thing i miss most about here i mean i know you're a big big turkey hunter and they come right where we're sitting miriams will come out here and and uh, strut and everything, but uh, it's on a draw and yeah. a pretty tight draw. And it, it's almost, I mean, I don't want to say comical because it bums me out, but it's funny to think about having to draw a turkey tag. Um, but I miss them. That's probably probably the one hunt that I'll get back into eventually, um, you know. I've hunted California. I didn't hunt it last year, but I've hunted it for turkeys for years. And they have some phenomenal turkey hunting. Uh, you know, a lot of the best turkey hunting, obviously, is on private property there. Sure. Um, and I'm I'm not real familiar with the public land opportunities, but I know the places that I have hunted that are private, they have just a gobs of birds. And yeah. I know they do have quite a bit of public hunting, you know, near Redding and, and um, near Sacramento and some of those places. Sure. Uh, so... Moving forward, the Colorado draw just came out, and uh, you've been booking hunts and just kind of curious how uh, your outlook is for this season. Obviously, I'm sure it's subjected to, you know, how good the weather is, and hopefully sure. it won't be like last year. But um, what do you think with, with reduced antlerless numbers, and you got any outlook for us? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the elk hunting will probably be close to kind of status quo it's going to take a, a couple of years for really like a reduced female harvest to to make a big difference um we i think we might have a little bit of an uptick just watching the bulls here in the spring um there was for sure more bulls that made it through in that yeah you know, five by five range and stuff that that would have typically been been taken in the, in a normal weather year um so there's probably a little bit there's probably just a higher bull ratio is my guess, uh, a legal bull ratio. Um, but, uh, elk like always is going to be pretty, pretty weather dependent. Um, and then deer, uh, kind of, kind of analogous. Again, a lot of guys blew their points last year. Um, given my advice or other people's advice, you know, and then it turned out to be one of the toughest fourth seasons probably we've had in a decade. Um, just because it's so mild. It's warm. Yeah. yeah. So when it's warm like that, the deer are just spread out all over and, yeah. and hard to find because they're, it's the country's so big. Normal third and fourth seasons where those deer are moving down, they're getting pushed down, they're congregated. So people are like, there's deer everywhere. Yeah. When they're, when it's warm, they're, they're all over the map, right? Yeah. It's just about density, right? And it's really, if you want to simplify it, it's really about density of does. You know, like our does will get into little aspen pockets where in a normal year you go down there and see 40 does before the rut. Like you know you're going to go back in there in bucks you saw in the high country, bucks that are 10 miles from there in the summertime or whatever can show up. So those are, it's it becomes a lot easier to hunt them there. When your does are are spread out because you've got no snow push, there's feed everywhere and then in addition to the fact that it's not cold enough to really get them up other than just the wee hours of, of twilight and then in the morning, um, it's more difficult to hunt them. You're still going to kill them. I mean, you're still hunting the rut. And the rut, I mean, people might differ with me on this, but my personal opinion is the rut really doesn't change. 
like in terms of the actual dates, you know, that you can, you know, maybe on the elk, there's some viable debate there, but I mean, you see these mule deer does around my house, they're having fawns at the exact same time they always have. So I don't think that there's much really there. The deer are still in rut. They've still got that in their mind. They're still kind of dumb. It's just, you got to find, you got to, it's a little bit harder to find them. For sure. Uh, you you mentioned you're going to be doing some goat hunts, and I've talked to you before about the podcast about goat hunts. Uh, anybody out there that has uh, a goat tag in Colorado or across the West, what is some advice that you would give to uh, people with goat tags? Uh, you know, my the I think it's probably a little cliche, but try to get in good shape. Um, and then you know, kind of on that is. Uh, Maybe if you can spend some time in the summer uh, in goat country, you know the type of the type of terrain they live in, um, get in shape, and then if you expose yourself to that terrain, because one thing that's maybe unique to goat hunts is there's going to be moments where you're scared to death, you know, just because of the, you know, and there's a legitimate danger in a lot of goat country. So to go up and get familiar with some of it, I think is always, you know. Uh, a a good piece of advice and it doesn't matter where you're at like i you know goats in bc goats in alaska goats here yeah there's some differences and you know the guys in bc will argue their terrain's more rugged or whatever but generally goats are on rocks and so that they're in this everywhere i've seen them they tend to be that case there's some anomalies that interior bc they will get out and grass like little grassy slopes where they've never been hunted before but for the most part you got to get used to that nasty rocks because that's where they're going to be you know so if you're going and looking for goats what's the first thing that you look for uh in terms of like uh, trying to find a big one or just no, just yeah. trying to find mountain goats oh in terms of their habitat topography yeah i mean the first thing i'll go to well what i found with goats is that the nannies and kids and then the bigger billies and the bachelor groups of billies are almost like a different species when it comes to the habitat. Because one thing is you're never you're never hunting them um, during their rut. Um, you know their rut's way past any of the seasons. There there might be an exception to that. Well, I know there is like Bolin and Lewis they hunt them in the rut, but that's like an an anomaly in the mountain goat world. So for the most part, your billies are going to be separate from the nannies and kids. The nannies and kids. Generally, like in a high alpine basin, here it's going to be, you know, from 12.5 up to 13.5 where there's some grassy slopes, but, you know, scree. You can, you know, you look at it through your binoculars, you know you can walk across that and you're not going to be scared. It's all good. That's where you're going to see nannies and kids typically. And then the billies will be above them in the rougher stuff. A lot of, you know, billies are more likely to be the ones you look across at some, you know, 13.9 big you know scree field that there's impossible to get on and there's a goat in the middle of it that's gonna typically be a billy so i mean just look on your topo map for the just the gnarliest nastiest craggiest peaks and then once you when you're physically out there going when you just look with your eye and you go where's the roughest nastiest spot right there okay that that's gonna be where the goats are yeah and look and then and then you can um like billies, a lot of times will be unapproachable because where they're at. Um, and th- there's for sure cases, I think anybody that's hunted them very much knows that there's places, one, you can't get to them, or if you shot them there, why would you, what would be the point? You know what I mean? It's just, I mean, you can't, you can't. Yeah, the goat's going to get destroyed. You don't know if you're going to be able to recover it. What You would never want to do that. So um, in those cases, most goats will, they will go somewhere like if if they're not being messed with too much, they will go to a little grass or something on a slope, um, or they'll go to water. You know, they'll find a little seep. So you can kind of pattern them that way to get them somewhere where you can shoot them. Um, but yeah, to me, like I was taught because um, you know the Billy Nanny thing. Until you've looked at a lot, it's pretty tough. You you really got to look at a bunch to know. I was actually originally taught by guys here in Colorado that have hunted them forever, first use where they're at. And that's going to get you 90% of the the way on, on sex, right? Um, if they're in this type of terrain, you're pretty sure they're a billy. If not, and then 
and then add on your other variables after that. And that seems to be pretty pretty valuable. You know, I rarely will kill a billy out of a group of nannies. Last year, I actually did it twice, but that's pretty pretty rare. So you can pick through in those in both in uh, one of those goats was was you know not not an immature billy, but just there like three and a half ish, four years old. So those you'll kind of see with nannies sometimes, but for the most part, you won't. You'll see them in groups of two or three. Gar and I are excited to go on our. Uh, Alaskan goat hunt Uh, we've never neither of us have been to Alaska and neither of us have really been around goats I've seen a few here and there but very very limited knowledge of them Uh, what will a billy weigh you know like the here in Colorado I don't know in are you are you hunting you're hunting coastal Alaska Kenai Peninsula yeah I gotcha so those goats my guess are probably bigger body size but here the bigger goats seem to go like what a big mule deer goes. Uh, like a 300-pound one's pretty darn big, um, okay. you know. Um, it's it's interesting you ask the question because I always think goats are way bigger than mule deer because whenever I guide a mule deer hunt, typically the guy just wants uh, a shoulder mount. Mm-hmm. But on goats, you're always packing full-body capes. So, like, when you first ask that question – I thought to myself, oh, they're like 500 pounds because it sure as hell seems like, it. <laughs> you know, but, um, but yeah, they're, they're really right about like a beefy mule. There seems to be a good size one, but they vary quite a bit because they, there's, it's weird. Like the other thing, like back to your original question about habitat with them is they're really localized. Like they will stay on a, unless they're messed with a whole lot, they will stay in one spot, like a little bitty mountain range for their whole life. You know, they're, and that makes them susceptible to over harvesting stuff too because of that. Um, but I've noticed, like, and one of the guys that I've guided for who knows a whole lot more than I do about them, uh, Joe Bauscher, he mentioned this to me um, that uh, in some areas there's almost like a pygmy version of them. They're like just, they just got smaller bodies, you know. So really watch your body size if you can. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the the guys that I do the bear hunts with up in BC, he he runs a big goat operation, and he and he he almost does all of his like judging, and then they're able to do a fair in their territories because they're exclusive. They can kind of do some of their own game management. He tends to do it solely based on body size. You know what I mean? When he's glassing goats from a couple thousand yards where you can't. It doesn't matter what people tell you. You can't tell the difference between an eight and a half inch goat and a nine inch goat at two thousand yards. Mm-hmm. There's no way. But he can look at him and say, "Well, we're gonna go after that Billy because he's. I can look at his body. He's substantially bigger. He's probably older. So, okay. you know, good stuff to know. We're looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, you have fun. How tough are they? I mean, uh, when you hit them, are are they pretty tough or they go down pretty pretty good? Yeah, you, have you have you heard the rumors on goats? Uh-uh. They're the toughest. Are they? Pound for pound. I mean, in my experience, by a mile. Really? Like, for instance, uh, we were, I was just talking to uh, one of the guys last night about it because we have a new guide up here, and we were kind of telling some stories. But um, last year, we had a Billy. It just happened to be the situation. He came out of a group of nannies, and he, and he started about 300 yards and started walking straight to us. Did and he see you? No, he didn't. It happened to be that what happens on goats is you tend – during the day, you tend to have a great thermal. If you get above a goat, they're pretty good as dead. One, they don't have a whole lot of, they don't have a whole lot of instinctual um, fear of what's above them. Um, but the other thing is, typically, you got like here, at least in Colorado, you got a rushing thermal in your face. They will if if they smell you, they will leave if they're in an area where they've been hunted. But, um, anyways, he just started walking straight to us, and you know, by the time the guy shot. Um, the goat was prop. My guess is twenty yards. Oh my goodness! With a seven millimeter, hit him, and the goat literally just looked at us. And you know, for an you know, if it was a mule deer at that distance, it would have just been flat out. Um, and so he ha- he had to shoot him twice from twenty yards. Now, the I will say the the caveat to that is that um, I learned you know, and I've had some a, a, a decent mentor on this goat thing. Um, you learn really quick, you don't ever shoot a goat. And if it's still standing, you never, you never just wait for it to die. Keep shooting. Yeah. You want them to be on the ground. 
Um, a lot of guys will recommend you just pin them through the shoulders just to get them stopped. And that has to do with their terrain. You don't want to put yourself in danger or get their goat all beat up or whatever. But they're notorious for just taking a leap, you know. Just one last hurrah, right? <laughs> so they, you know, they have that reputation. two thousand feet to the yeah. bottom. <laughs> so in this case, the guy hit him really good from twenty feet. I'm sure the goat would have died, but I told him to shoot it again because it was in a great spot, and let's keep him there. But that just giving the idea, like it's the only goat I've ever seen flat out like hit the dirt was one that got shot in the face. That's the only goat I've ever seen hit just first shot hit the deck. Wow. So, and I mean, you're, I'm not like the, I don't have like thousands of goat experience, but I think you'll hear guys reiterate like, you know, they can be, they're pretty tough, you know. So Dar's going with the bow, you say, take a dozen arrows with him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I've never, I've never guided a, a bow hunter, but that'll be fun, you know, to, to chase him with a bow. So I don't know if that, if that toughness applies to, to that, that also, I mean, I assume it does, you know. Um, but he's got to be, is, is, are you guys getting in shape for it? And yeah, excited. I know I am Colburn. If you're listening, I'm coming for you. So, um, no, we've been having fun with it. We've been jawboning at each other a little bit. He's like, how many miles do you do today? And I, you know, I'd tell him and he'd say, well, I did, you know, whatever 5.25, you know, he's, he's yeah, always sure. trying to a quarter mile more. And I say, well, what elevation were you at? Yeah. He's like a thousand feet. I'm like, okay, I'm at 9,500 to 10,000. He's like, oh yeah. What, what it, what's the elevation of the goat area? It's only like 2,500 yeah. feet. So yeah, it's so funny. Cause like, uh, the, the guys I interact with in British Columbia, their country's really rugged and where you're going, same kind of coastal ruggedness, I assume. They always argue like, oh, you guys in Colorado have it so good. Your goats are an easy country or whatever. And some of that, there's there's some truth to that. But I always get them because it's like, you guys are killing goats at 3,000 feet. We were killing goats at 13.9. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of oxygen difference. Yeah, yeah, there. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, they probably have some truth because a lot of that is just rugged, rugged. Sure, you know what I mean. Like from the bottom, from the base to the top, it's just super rugged. But I can always get. I always pull over the elevation argument on them. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's it's the um, outfitter uh, Frank Sanders that we're going with uh, is a friend of ours, and and yeah. uh, he kind of sent us some maps where we're going, and um, I was looking at like it's only 2,500 feet. mm Hmm. But then I realized where we're starting is at, at basically 10 yeah. feet and we're, you know, going straight 2,500 straight feet up. So, sure. I mean, sure. What do you do? You glass them from, from the coast or? From what I understand, we're, we're flying in um, to a beach and then we're hiking up to a high point and then looking across some basin. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's says he's hunted there several times and had some good success. Cool. So, so he'll have them figured out. Yeah. So that's a good deal. I'm sure you guys are looking forward to it. Um, it's funny. Like I think if I was out of the outfitting business, um, it sounds ridiculous, but that's probably the first time I do is a goat hunt somewhere else. I was going to ask you that with as much outfitting as you do and as much business as you do here and hunters that you take and such, some of your personal hunting gets, you know, put oh, on yeah, the, sure. cause basically eating up most of your fall. Yeah, no, it does. But I mean, I think, I think it's okay. I view, I, I mean, I, I think you, you do too, Jay. Like you view a lot of those hunts as to some extent your own. Yeah. You know what I mean? You get it, you get an opportunity that, that, that a lot of people don't to, to understand yeah. certain species. That's the way I feel like, you know, I, I love hunting myself as well. Yeah. But I love, like you get to watch this, this basin and, you know, this country from, you know, September all the way through when the leaves change through all the different seasons. And it's almost, I know from my own perspective with some of the other hunts that I guide, it's almost addicting to be in a place and watch it from start to finish through the seasons. Sure. You know, it's almost like you just feel like you can't miss, you know, a second season or a third season. You got to be there for all of them because it's so neat. No, Uh, I, yeah, I think you're totally, and I think, I think, maybe this is speculation. That's why some people are so obsessed with mule deer and then in the outfitting world, uh, sheep, because a lot of these guys see the same, they see the rams grow up, you know what I mean? Or they, you see mule mm-hmm. deer grow up and, uh, uh, I guess it sounds kind of ridiculous, but you almost become, you kind of get connected to them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, elk in our country is a little bit different just because you don't have, they got more hunting pressure, they, they're 
more robust in terms of just pop and they just roam. Mm-hmm. But I noticed that on deer and stuff, you see the same ones and you get that opportunity. It's, it's kind of cool. Um, so that's unique deal. I got, I got my own hunting goals though. I've been thinking about them lately, you know, Good. I don't know. Got to get you down there in Mexico and shoot a coos deer. Yeah, it'd be cool. Yeah. That's on, that's on the list for sure. It's funny. Like a lot, uh, a lot of things start to start to take up as uh, ideas, but it's kind of ridiculous, right? You do it for work. And then you're going to go on vacation to go hunting. It's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, that I think the good outfitters, the one that, that, that lasts the longest, are the ones that love it. And oh, it's sure. so funny to see some of the ones that are really good outfitters. They typically, on their off-season, are hunting, too. So you know they love hunting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's for sure, like, some guys that... Um, and we all know that a lot of these hunts are crazy expensive and outfitting's not a not a lucrative you know, it's not like the, the it's not the best employment decision on, on planet earth, you know. But a lot of outfitters you'd be some of them are humble about it, but you'd be surprised what they've been able to do. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of hunts. Yeah. You know. Well I think a lot of it too is opportunities, people they meet and know sure. and you know, you know, trading hunts, different things where yeah. You know, they become buddies like you've become friends with guys in BC and sure. you, you're doing different hunts and you get exposed to a lot of different opportunities. Right. That brings me back full circle and I've given you a hard time about it before and talked to you about going to Stanford and doing as well as you did and, and um, you know, working you and your brother and your, your business and, you know, suit and tie and, you know very successful at what you did and, and sure. you you left all that to come back to be to to outfit yeah i think it speaks directly to your sense of adventure and you know leaving you know career path of you know millions of dollars you know of you know making lots of money and sure. doing that to come back and and outfit it speaks probably to what's in your heart and that's the adventure the spirit of the hunt i just curious if yeah you speak speak to it yeah no i mean i guess uh it's super cliche but uh at some point you realize you only you don't this you only do this one time right you only got one life so um and that's not a knock on anybody that works really hard and goes on awesome hunts 10 days a year or whatever i totally understand that dynamic and sometimes i'm very envious of that you know um but uh for me and it could just be how i'm wired or whatever um I just had to do it, you know, you have to do it, and, and, because I, I always laugh about it, particularly when there's, like, frustration, like, everybody has this, you get frustrated about certain things, and you're talking to your wife or whatever, and it's like, well, the way I can justify it is, I will, when I'm old, I'll never say, you know what, I wish I sure as hell didn't do that, you know what I mean, and it may not have been, you know, the best decision on a bunch of economic levels or whatever, but, you got to you got to do it. Yeah. All you're gonna do is regret it. So if you don't, so that's my view on it. You know, the other thing I'll say, Jay, and uh, I'm very lucky in this regard is that I came from a family that's pretty supportive of that. Nobody told me I was an idiot for doing this or that. Um, and so I think that you know, try to be humble about that because if you don't have that support and you got people around you tell you you're a moron because you're making stupid adventure decisions. <laughs> you left millions of dollars to be Yeah, whatever. There. Like, I've never, not one time in my life have had somebody tell me that. So I think, I, I got I gotta, you gotta throw that in there as a grain of salt because it's hard. I mean, if you got people around you telling you that, no, you gotta do this, you're an irresponsible person or whatever, and you, you know, I, I'm not someone to say that you shouldn't take care of things in your life and family, but, uh, it's way easier yeah. if you got like I, you know. Well, I would say if you have those people around, you get rid of them. Period. Yeah, that's true. You know, if yeah. you've got that negativity around, yeah. it's your life, and you decide what your, makes you happy. And I think it's a perfect example of, you know, here's a situation. You go to Stanford, you go and you get, you know, a, a, let's just call it a finances, a Wall Street type job, a, sure. you know, a big big time job that most people would look at and say, oh my gosh, everybody in the world would want to do that, and you did it. You did very well at it, yeah. And you decided I want to be an outfitter. I say that, and I always bring it up. And you're probably like, "I'm sick of you bringing it up," but it's just <laughs> Maybe a, hopefully the listeners aren't. It's sick a cool. It, it's yeah. just a cool story of of. There's more to life than money. Yeah, and, and um, 
I mean, look at look around us here. It's just incredibly gorgeous, and sure, um, you know, you've got a thriving family, a thriving business, and you're doing what you love. And and um, there's more than more than you know one way to skin a cat. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think I think it relates to your listeners and stuff, Jay, because a lot of guys that are you know doing a couple hunts a year, um, I they're actually kind of the anomaly. There's a lot of guys that have dreams of going on hunts every year. And this, I don't mean this to be like self-serving. Don't, don't, I'm not like pushing people to come hunt with me or any other outfit or whatever, or, you know, do your own, do it yourself hunts or anything. But there's a lot of guys that all they do is dream about it and years and years and years pass. And to me, almost anybody, uh, and I hope this doesn't sound asinine, you can go on a $5,000 hunt if it's a do-it-yourself Alaska moose hunt or guided elk hunt or whatever, and you can make up for it. Mm-hmm. But you can't make up for the fact you're getting older, mm-hmm. you know. That's, so, you can't stop time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think it all relates, right? You yeah. know, I was talking to one of my guides about like the like the doing the grand slam or whatever. Like people who are into that, I'm sure you've been around a lot of guys that want to do that. And uh, every once in a while, I hear people talk negative about it or whatever. I'm like, I think it's achievable for most anybody. It's yeah, the hunts are ridiculous, expensive or whatever. But why not? You know, Brendan Burns, I did a podcast with him, and one thing he said, it's priorities. Yeah. You know, yes, they're expensive, but most people over the period of their lifetime, if they want it bad enough, they can make sacrifices to make things like that happen. Whether it's a $50,000 hunt, on the surface, it sounds like a lot. Sure. But if you want it bad enough, there's things that you can do. Second jobs, you know, yeah. work at night, work weekends. Like, you can make it happen. Yeah. You can side hustle. And so I think it's, you know, I think the it's easy to make an excuse why, oh, it's just a rich man's deal. Well, if you want it bad enough, I don't care who you are, you can make things happen. Right. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, just, just like, I, and this kind of probably reiterating what he said, to some extent it is, but... uh like you say, you can make that a priority in your life and, and do it. I mean, it's just a sk- stone sheep are a scarce resor- resource. Desert sheep are a scarce resource, so they're going to be expensive. But, I mean, I don't know that it's, you know, flying into the, some beautiful place in northern B.C. or whatever and spending 10 days and it costs you 35000 bucks. Yeah, it's a ton of money, but... Uh, I got to replace my Ford diesel truck and it's going to cost me right. 70, yeah. you know, so I'm not demeaning just life and the, its challenges, but come on. I mean, yeah. I know. mean, but I mean, there's all sorts of things like, you know, if you didn't eat out all the time sure. for four years in a row, you would have a stone sheep hunt. Yeah. That's just, the, that's just economics. That's yeah. just numbers. That's just the facts of, sure. you know. People that eat out, they end up spending, you know, $10,000 a year eating out. And right. They don't think so when it's, you know, 32 bucks here and 32 bucks there and $76 there. But when you add it up, there's there's your stone sheep hunt. So, yep. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't want to get on my soapbox too much. but No, but I think it's, I, I mean, to me, it's motivating to talk about it because that is probably something I want to do in my life at some point is do the Grand Slam. Um, and I'll, maybe I'll catch some flack or whatever for do that. Do you want to do the Grand but, Slam to do the Grand Slam, or do you just want to do it because it's the adventure of the Grand Slam? I just That's want to, I just want to go to the places. Yeah. I, That's like exactly. really what it is. Exactly. I just want to go to, I want to go, I've done some BC, but I haven't been into the good stone sheep areas in Northern BC. Uh, I haven't done any of like the you know the like guys will say a lot of the doll hunts are like the most rugged stuff there is i haven't done that and then even going to mexico and doing a desert sheep or or you know if you if i was lucky to draw a tag it's just you get to go to the spots yeah you know yeah i mean i you know there's certainly people that chase after the slam that you know they want the slam to be able to tell their buddies they want the slam and then sure. You know, I, I don't know that I'm super into that, but I think the slam is cool because it's an achievement and it, it's yeah. something that not many people do and it's pretty neat. But for me, it's more about the adventure of each hunt. And if oh, I'm yeah. fortunate enough to get to do all four, it would be pretty cool to tell the story. Yeah. And for me, I hope it's not the story of, oh, the ram was, you know, you know, 169 inch da 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 da. I hope it's more like. Oh yeah, that's the one where we ran out of water and we had to do this and sure. you know like how the hunt went and the adventure and yeah, you, you know we yeah, some we almost fell some off some stories. cliff or you know whatever. Yeah, sure. Um sure. It, well, I think 
Yeah, no, I'm I'm totally with you on that. And then a lot of it, you know, a lot of these to achieve that, particularly on stone sheep, a lot of guys are going multiple times. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of, I mean, people can people can degrade it or whatever, but there's still a lot of adventure in a lot of this. Yeah. You know, so I think it's I think it's cool. I mean, you know, it's an it's an idea. I'm not dead set on it, but I kind of think about how I could fathom it, you know, and, and do it and. It's it's funny we talk about adventure hunts and we talk about some of those stuff that you know seem unachievable when you really think about them, and then there's hunts as simple as you know turkey hunts and you know I cooster hunt every year. Yeah, and I just can't imagine being anywhere other than the deserts of Mexico in January. Sure, it's just people say, well, don't you get tired of hunting them? Don't you get tired of how many do you need to shoot? I'm like, every one of them is different. I yeah, like yeah. all. You know, I like all big deer. I don't sure. care what it is. You know, I, I love pursuing coos deer. So on one hand, I know there's people that, you know, have bucket list hunts and they're just checking them off yeah. the list. And then, you know, for me, I, I totally get that. And there's some that I want to do. But sure. then there's some that I want to do every year because I enjoy it. And yeah, maybe yeah, someday fun. I'll wake up and I'll be like, oh, I'm kind of over the coos deer thing. Yeah. And maybe I never go again. Yeah, but sure. I, you have know, you have you right had, now? I can't fathom that happening. Right? Have you had any species like that in your life that you just kind of eh, I'll kind of go on? No, I mean, not really. Not really. Yeah. yeah, you've enjoyed getting better and better. At not really. Probably. I mean, uh, honestly, I love elk and stuff. Sure. Um, and I, you know, this is the first year that I'm actually not going to guide. I'm I'm not going to guide an elk hunter in Arizona. Uh, I'm going to actually go to, to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I've always wanted to spend the rut in, uh, the, the national park, which sure. some people think it's crazy. It's something I've always wanted to do. I want to see them go crazy at, yeah. you know, five feet away. And of right. course I'll be, you know, there'll be 300 people right next to me, you know, with way better camera gear, but it's just something I've wanted to do. So yeah, I'm going to do sure. it. So, I mean, I would say if maybe if any animal that, it's not that I'm over elk at all because yeah. I still love them. Yeah. It's just this particular year, it's one thing that I've wanted to do. And so this year's the year, and that's what I'm doing. Sure. No, I hear you. And I, I think that's right. Like you get, you kind of pro- progress through diff- having like a, you know, a real interest in certain species or, or, or whatever. But I think it's it's probably maybe there's like a, a brain, brain wiring thing because a lot of people are really, it seems to be, there's a little negative connotation of the guy that just wants to go through all all the hunts, but I've guided those guys, and a lot of them have just as much appreciation yeah. about it and everything. Else, I, I so. think I see it both ways. I see the guys that are just doing it to be able to tell their buddies they did it, yeah. or just be on some list. And then there's some guys that are just like, I just want the adventure. Sure, I'm just yeah. you know I'm going to hunt this. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go here. Yep. And just because they want to see new stuff, uh, and, and I mean, I get it. I, 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 sure. I totally get, I see both sides. Yeah. Well, it's like at every level, like even I, like I've looked at like the Turkey, the Turkey, what do they call it? The like slam, the Turkey slam, the, yeah, the yeah. grand slam, yeah. the Royal slam, the yeah. world slam. It's yeah. like the same thing, right? A lot of guys do it because they want to go. And you're like, it's just a bird. You know what? Yeah. But I, exactly. But I've also thought, oh, really? That's kind of cool though. There's several species you can look yeah. at them. So it, it's, it is neat. And there's uh um, like you say, it takes you a lot of different different places. So I don't know. It, but again, it just goes back to that. It's kind of wild. Like you do you do the hunting for a living, and then you want to go. You want to go and hunt. For me, a hunt that you know I'm just really really looking forward to is in 2018 going to go on a doll sheep hunt. Yeah. Uh, for me, you know, I've never seen a doll sheep. Sure. Uh, I just want to go see the country. I'm going to Arctic Red River and 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 and. Uh, uh, you know, the Northwest Territories, and it's just, I want to go experience that backpack hunt. You know, they say you walk, you know, seven to ten miles a day, sometimes even more. Sure. Um, It's just, doll sheep to me is the one animal right now that I'm just so intrigued with. I'm, anybody that's hunted them, I sit there and ask them all sorts of questions and can't get it out of my mind. And people are like, well, do you, you know, do you want to, you know, do you want to, a heavy broomer or do you want a you know a t- real twisty one i'm like yeah, i don't i i don't know i i, I just want to <laughs> see them i want to experience it like i really don't care yeah just check them out yeah. sure and then it's cool to fathom that there's 
there's guys that are so into that species just like you are on the turkeys or coos deer. Yeah. Right? Like, cause, well, uh, like that Justin Schaefer. Yeah. He, I was talking to him. He drew a tag over here. We were, we were BSing about it. The guys killed a bunch of doll sheep. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty neat, you know. Um, so that's good. I, I was, I just, I gotta, uh, do a shout out to the Ben at, um, Arctic Red River. He's got some very cool YouTube videos. He does. Yeah. So if it, what, what's his last name? Sturek. I think if you look up Ben Sturek on YouTube, I, I thought his videos were awesome. Yeah. He's got like a horseback. S-T-O-U-R-A-C. I believe yeah. Ben Sturek. And, uh, you know, I've watched every one of them and the adventure just you know, and it's not like it's any fancy, you know, it's, he's sure. just editing it and just, you know, rough edits, but it's showing the whole hunt. Yeah, it's, it's cool. So it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing, Ben, don't take this wrong. It's not like a professional video. It's like yeah. just him filming the hunts, then he cuts them a little bit and puts them out there. And it's, sure. it's awesome because it catches everything from flying in to hiking to, you know, screwing up stocks and, yeah. you know, like him pointing like three ridges over and he's like yeah we're going over there and you're, you know <laughs> sure. from, from a viewer watching the video you're like they're gonna go from here to there are you kidding me right yeah and i don't i don't even know ben i just ran into the videos and i was like this is these are cool yeah you know? that's where i'm going yeah same area yeah right? same area that'll so be cool i'm, I'm stoked that'll so be cool. anything on your uh you know in the back of your mind that you're like man i really want to go on certain hunt you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, pro- stone sheep's probably there. It's yeah. not in the, it's not in the, in the, um, real close future for me, but, uh, you know, probably a, a coos deer's probably there too, honestly, Jay. Um, just cause I enjoy that type of hunting, mm-hmm. at least my understanding of it, a lot of glassing and, mm-hmm. and, and spending time doing that. So those are there. Um, like I said, to be honest with you, probably my own goat hunt. Mm-hmm. That sounds crazy, but it, now have yeah. you drawn in the state of Colorado? Well, no, I haven't. Are, um, I mean, are you are you? Yeah, is I will. A tag eminent? Oh yeah, anytime here because yeah. I've been putting in for a long time. Um, so uh, yeah, I'll get one here soon. But uh, um, and you know, it's it's funny because I used to not really uh, have the urge. Uh, the the really the big urge to do my own goat hunt but it's just been kind of now i'm kind of like eating yeah, at you. it might be fun yeah so uh so that and then you know like i said stone sheep and i i mean i like i like british columbia a lot so all those hunts appeal to me mm-hmm. i think it's beautiful and a lot i mean a lot of it's i don't know a little remoteness and different yeah a little different yeah everything's different you know yeah. um but who knows you might ask me next year and i get to talking to people in a different area or whatever you know how it goes you yeah. probably run into the same thing yeah so. well it was good to see you guys at sci um you guys were down there and um ran into sure. you there and um obviously great to see your place here uh encourage any of the listeners that uh have uh want to hunt colorado to give uh, cliff a call i want to give you a chance cliff to let people know where they can find you and encourage them to uh, follow Cliff on Instagram, and uh, he's got a great website and great blog and stuff on his website. Sure. So, yeah, the, the best things are the website, ftguides.com, and then my Instagram, uh, Cliff, C-L-I-F-F-G-R-Y. Um, yeah, those are the best the best, uh, best way to get a hold of me. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for having me here, and thanks for showing me around. It's been awesome. Uh, been uh, really good to see your place here, and uh, now I can kind of put it all together now that I've seen it and uh yeah really really neat place super organized great great uh you know staff here and um it's it's obvious you run a really really good operation here yeah no I appreciate it it's fun to kind of do these in person too yeah you for know? sure um you you do them over the phone and you don't get the same same kind of interaction so I'm glad you were able to make it up awesome well until I t- see you next time god bless and Uh, I want to thank you guys, the listeners, for tuning in to this podcast. And uh, feel free to send me an email at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments or people you want to see on the podcast. And I want to take a second to thank the sponsors. And you can go to the show notes of this podcast episode uh, to see the different uh, discounts and such using the jscott promo code. And I want to thank gohunt.com insider. Kuyu Ultralight Hunting, Phonescope.com, and the guys at the Outdoorsman's. Uh, And uh, guys, until next time, God bless.